This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to the Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast, joining you from the Gadigal land of the Aurora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined in the party room by Jennifer Hewitt, the National Affairs Columnist with the Australian Financial Review and a friend of the party room, I think it's fair to say. And we're going to be talking about, in part, the federal election because be under no illusion, my friends, we are in full campaign mode. When you see a Prime Minister out on the hustings making spring rolls and getting a haircut in full public view, you know we're in election mode. And not just that, there were policies flying left, right and centre too from Scott Morrison as he could finally sort of shrug off the, the shackles of quarantine back from Glasgow as he was and get out and about and cross the border into Melbourne uh, for starters. Um, the Prime Minister was unveiling some new low emissions technology policy, including a new electric vehicle strategy. And you say, wait... Hark, electric vehicles, election campaigns, that reminds me of something. Yes, it reminds you of this. This is the Scott Morrison, last election campaign, being extremely critical of Labor's electric vehicle policy. It's not going to tow your trailer. It's not going to tow your boat. It's not going to get you out to your fa- favourite camping spot with your family. Bill Shorten wants to end the weekend when it comes to his policy on electric vehicles, where you've got Australians who who love being out there in their four-wheel drives. He wants to say, see you later to the SUV. See you later to the SUV (laughs) and the weekend. That was how the government saw electric vehicle policy from Labor last election. This week, PK, it's a different story. Taking action on climate change, it's a practical challenge. It means that you need to ensure that you've got the infrastructure in place for for hydrogen charging. It's making sure there's smart charging facilities available to consumers. It's making sure that you don't crash the grid when everybody goes in to plug in for their vehicles into the future. It's about supporting, whether it's councils, to translate their vehicles into hydrogen-powered vehicles for their waste trucks, or indeed for large commercial fleets or heavy vehicles. Or indeed, perhaps your SUV, PK. I don't know what you call this. Do you call this progress or do you call it a backflip? It is a backflip. There is no doubt about it. It is a backflip. But Fran, it's also progress. (laughs) It's both. Because we want the government to be embracing new policies that get us to the point of getting to net zero emissions by 2050 and accelerating the pace of low emissions technology, including vehicle emissions, right? 20% of emissions uh, are caused in this country by transport, by Mm. vehicles. So we need to address this issue. But backflip it was. Now, the Prime Minister did everything, as you know, Fran, to argue that it was not a backflip, that he was he's still very happy about everything he said because he was opposing Bill Shorten's policy, which he he considers to be forcing people, forcing people, you know, making them, mandating the use of the electric car, whereas what he's doing is sort of providing choice and enabling. That's the kind of way that he's framed the debate. But the truth is, 
it is a backflip because the language he used was not just about the specific detailed policies of Bill Shorten. He talked down electric cars full stop. That's what he was doing. When you talk about ending the weekend, you're talking about, um, you, you know, what you're trying to do is create alarm and actually pressing the button of anxiety about people's weekends, so to speak, that, you know, electric cars can't deliver them the kind of lifestyle they need. So he needs to be challenged on that. He was challenged that by that on that by the journalists that were at the press conference. He didn't acknowledge that he'd made a shift because that's that's the way he is. Scott Morrison never does. But he always tries to tell you that you didn't hear that. Well, we did. He did say that. And now they've moved to this policy, which is all about, um, you know, it doesn't deal with one massive part of the question, which is affordability of electric cars. And that remains a vexed issue for him because without dealing with that issue, yeah, charging stations is one issue that deals with the, you know, anxiety around how long your car can go for for a big drive in a big country. That's significant. You need that. You need the infrastructure. Absolutely need it. That's why I say when you ask me the question, is it progress? It is. So I, I say absolutely fantastic to, to do that. But I spoke to Matt Keane on my program this week. He's the New South Wales Treasurer and Environment Minister. And his government has just signed on to a pledge with the United Nations Climate Change Conference at the COP26 to boost electric car vehicle sales and to make 50% of all new vehicles sold in that state, our biggest state, the one you're in, in New South Wales, 50% by 2030. Guess what, Fran? That sounds a lot like Bill Shorten's policy. This is a coalition government in New South Wales doing that. Prime Minister isn't going to that space yet, and yet... It seems to me that he kind of needs to if he wants to actually get to his net zero by 2050 pledge. And also, I mean, the criticism that the Prime Minister was making of Labor's policy back in 2019 and even today, it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, that this allegation that, you know, Labor's going to put on mandates and taxes. In fact, there was nothing mandatory about Labor's policy at the last election. It was an aim to get to 50% of new cars sold uh, I think it was 2030, I'm not clear on the date, um, you know, um, mm. b- but it was an aim to get to that, to make them electric. It was uh, not taxing people, it was actually giving people subsidies to lower the cost of the cars, to make them affordable, because you're right, that's the biggest hurdle, the affordability. And then this week, the Prime Minister asked on TV uh, about his criticism of Labor's policy. He said, Labor's electric vehicle policy in 2019 included putting up the cost of fuel. Now, I, I heard that and I thought, I don't remember that, and I've checked it. It did no such thing. I mean, what it did do was talk about bringing in, that's mandating, I suppose, better fuel efficiency standards, which is what the world has done and is why Australia is is now the dumping ground for for dirtier engines and less attractive for the manufacturers to send over their electric vehicles here because we don't have the fuel efficiency standards. But also, you know, the Turnbull government's own modelling said better fuel efficiency standards would save motorists money not cost them money. So I'm not sure where this thing of putting up the cost of fuel came from. So there seems to be a lot of things being said and alleged that aren't necessarily, well, true. True. No, not true. Uh, Look, the government is in, I think, genuine trouble on this issue around climate change 
Fran. They've been trying to neutralise this issue, obviously. You know, these, this is what these announcements are all about. You know, electric vehicles, tick. Uh, um, dealing with uh, clean energy technology, tick. This is what this week has been about and, and we'll see more of it, I think, coming yes, in too, as you say. to put it in the context of that, the map or the blueprint or the brochure as it, that was launched a few weeks ago, the criticism that, you know, we talked about here on, on the party room was that there was no flesh on the bones, there was no policy, there was a roadmap and a, and a pledge, but nothing to get you there. And I suppose this is the government starting to, to counter that criticism, to fill in some of the gaps, right? Yeah. And how can they not? They have to fill the gaps and they have to try to um, establish uh, the, the story in a lot of those moderate electorates, those, you know, we're talking Wentworth, we're talking Higgins, that, that they're taking this, ir- this issue seriously. But I spoke to Dr. Katie Allen, who is the member for Higgins the other day on my show, and she and and put the vehicle um, emissions EV kind of policy to her. And she made it quite clear that she hopes that there's more. (laughs) She said it very pointedly. This is good, but we need more. And that was somebody who knows that in her electorate, some charging stations at $250 million, that is not enough. I spoke to Matt Keane, as I mentioned. He, again, trying, you know, he's just not afraid to say what he really thinks, that guy. No, he's not. I know. <laughs> he, I heard that interview. It it's was fantastic. And he's, it's fantastic in so much as it's so frustrating to hear politicians kind of, you know, uh, try to curry favour with their political side so they're very careful. He just sort of says what he really thinks. He doesn't, he's not gratuitous. He just says the facts. And he said, we're spending $600 million on EV policy, right? They're spending $250 million nationally. So it's the ambition that's lacking. That's what he was suggesting. Mm. He's a coalition treasurer saying do more. Uh, and Katie, Katie Allen, uh, you know, she's a member for Higgins, very important electorate for the, the Liberal Party in Melbourne, very, very committed to climate change in that electorate and very concerned about it. She knows she has to deliver more than just some charging stations. Yeah. So what I'm saying is watch this space. The Prime Minister can't possibly think the work here is done because this, you know, this does not settle the issue. When the industry comes out, and and I acknowledge some of the points the government makes that, you know, they're self-interested. Of course they are, right? Of of course they have a kind of commercial imperative to to build this. But broadly, when they say that this policy is a fizzer, which is a pretty, (laughs) you know, inflammatory word. Yeah, it's not like, you know, they didn't sort of go, yay, good. You know, they were saying... It's just not good enough. It wasn't enough. And I think it's going to come back to bite him if he doesn't do more. Yeah, I think it's. I think what we're seeing, and perhaps we'll bring in our guest, Jenny Hewitt, with this now, because I think what we're seeing is the government doing as they did on emissions, which is, you know, now they're claiming we've, we can meet and beat our targets and we've done that. That's based very much off the work that the states have done, the targets and the work that the policies the states have put in place. And, you know, are they, are they counting on the same thing here? They know, I think it's close to 20%, as you said, of, of our... Our emissions come from transport. So they know electric vehicles is key to that. They're looking around. The ACT, the New South Wales, already have very ambitious electric vehicle plans that once again, they can sort of sit back a bit and the states will do the work and the government and people will feel, oh, there's my electric car. It's getting a bit cheaper. That's good. And the, and the federal government can sort of bask in the glory of that. I think this is a great time to bring in our guest. What do you think, PK? Let's do it. Jennifer Hewitt, National Affairs Columnist with the Australian Financial Review. Welcome to the party room. Great to be here. And yes, welcome, Jen. I described you earlier as a friend of the podcast. It's great to have you back. 
Yeah, terrific. Now, Jen, earlier in the podcast, Fran and I were talking about Scott Morrison's backflips on electric vehicles. That quote of him from that 2019 election where he claimed Labor's electric vehicle plan would, quote, end the weekend, has certainly come back to haunt him. And at his press conference to announce the new EV plan, a journalist pulled him up on this, as you'd expect, after he campaigned against EVs at the last election. Let's have a listen. How can you honestly spruik electric vehicles when you campaigned against them in the last election? But I didn't. That is just a Labor lie. I was against Bill Shorten's mandate policy trying to tell people what to do with their lives, what cars they were supposed to drive and where they could drive them. I don't agree with that. I still don't agree with it. And our policy takes a very different approach. So, Jennifer, I have to say that was a very Scott Morrison-like answer. He says it was a Labor lie that he campaigned against EVs at the last election. But we we have the videos and the transcripts. Uh, we heard it. It feels like gaslighting at this point. Yes, he didn't like Labor's policies, for sure. But he also talked down electric vehicles full stop and the idea of actually, you know, trying to make them more accessible was what he was talking about. What does that say about the character question, the way that he kind of constantly reframes everything and, and says that something didn't happen when it did? Yes, well, of course, that relies on people um, not remembering what went before. And, uh, and of course, in many times, people certainly don't. They don't pay the same attention that, uh, <laughs> that you and I do. But, but in many cases, of course, uh, other cases, there's also the very um, big problem for Morrison uh, that his lines are so cut through and so memorable um, that they do register. And clearly, um, that the, the, mar- the market uh, that he was aiming for in 2019 was tradies and their utes and and it was um, fairly effective but it's also meant that his now ability to you know wind all that back means that he becomes a much um, easier target for um, Labor to keep saying well look this is the guy you can't trust him. Yeah and that trust issue you know really sort of blew up for the Prime Minister at Glasgow with the French President calling him a liar and and then Malcolm Turnbull piling on all of that. So, you know, Labor's been moving on that trust line for a while now, and that was just like a gift to Labor. Um, but is is it resonating and is it going to last through to an election if it's held, you know, uh, March, but probably May? How how dangerous is that? And, and, and if, if it is, why would Scott Morrison walk into this particular um, issue like this? I mean, he must have known he was going to get asked questions about the, you know, it's going to Labor's electric vehicle is going to end your weekend. He must have known, um, and his only defence seemed to be, well, I didn't say that. Well, yes, I think that is, however, his his typical um, campaign style, uh, well, and governing style, really, which is to be to aggressively fight back uh, on any kind of questions of his own, you know, personal uh, integrity. And I think he overdoes it. I think it's kind of dangerous for him. Uh, on the other hand. Um, he figures, I guess, that if he sounds assertive and certain enough, um, then, uh, you know, the people, again, that he's trying to uh, persuade uh, will will get over that and not pay too much attention. And I think, uh, in, you know, in his, in his case, he clearly 
it worked in 2019, uh, but it's not just the technology that he said has changed. I mean, what's obviously changed is the community mood uh, uh, towards electric vehicles, far mm. more positive, still hesitant, but far more positive. So he also ne- now needs to say, look, we're, we're for them too, you know, and and I think he will now, and we've got the policies to prove it. Uh, there's always going to be the people who say, well, that's just, you know, a lot of nonsense. Um, but he's trying to, you know, get that that narrow path that he tried to get to in 2019 uh, of threading his way through seat by seat and and trying to get rid of you know the barnacles mm. um, that w- were actually worked for him in some ways in 2019 but you know have have now become uh, problems for him when I hear that thing about the narrow path I always picture Scott Morrison on a donkey sort of going through you know <laughs> a path somewhere picking his way uh, but you're right it worked for him once and and he's trying it again and yes there is a a mood change. People want these vehicles and they want them because like solar panels, ultimately, they're going to save money. It's going to, once the price gets down a bit, you know, the amount you save by not filling a car with petrol every week is going to be significant. But he also wants it because he needs it to get anywhere close to, you know, filling out that ambition of net zero emission by 2050. But what about the policy itself? So yes, there's a backflip, there's a clear, you know, disjunction from what the Prime Minister said two years ago to what they're saying now. The policy itself, though, Jennifer, the industry was critical of it, particularly critical of the lack of, you know, fuel efficiencies, emission standards uh, within it. It's really just an infrastructure job the government's done here. Yes, that's right. Is it enough? Well, I don't think it certainly um, won't be enough to convince the um, the industry, and it will not be enough to really greatly accelerate the take up of electric vehicles. Um, uh, now, the thing is, that there's two issues with electric vehicles. Um, you know, in terms of consumer hesitancy, one is very obviously the price, yeah, uh, and the other is you know just a bit of hesitation about how easy it's going to be at charge and things. Now, those things will event will come down over time. You know, over a few years, other countries, most other countries are basically trying to accelerate the take-up, however, by offering all sorts of incentives and subsidies. Um, This government says, no, no, that won't work. And the reason they they don't think it works or they say it it won't work is because even if it does accelerate the take-up, they say it will add to the cost of of a petrol car and they're not prepared to do that. I think this is going to be an increasingly difficult argument to sustain, but that's the one they're going with at the moment. Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, I think it was under the Turnbull government there was some work done when they were talking about doing something on fuel emissions, which seems like another lifetime ago because that's nowhere near in the lexicon now. But when they were, and the argument was that you know fuel uh, cleaner fuels, cleaner cars, you know better better emission standards would actually make it cheaper to run your petrol car as well. Yes, well, th- it depends, but um, <laughs> who you ask on this one. But I think there's there's a complication in this, which is very hard to get your head around. I'm just trying to do it. But there are two issues. There are carbon emissions and those kind of fuel efficiency standards. But there's also this thing called um, for noxious gases like sulphur. Australia has got dirty petrol. 
um, mm. much, and yeah. that means that's what another reason why people don't don't send or why car manufacturers don't send their best cars here because the latest technology won't run on that dirty petrol. The reason we have dirty petrol is because the government wants to keep refining the refineries here. Yes. There are actually only two left; two of them closed down um, last year. Uh, but to do that, they need to upgrade the refineries. They haven't done that yet. That's not going to happen for another couple of years. So um, that's that's also a very big reason why we don't have um, uh, the range of the latest technology cars here that Australians should. Then, of course, you've also got the complication of, you know, the, the taxes that are imposed, uh, including the luxury tax. Mm. That's right. Look, speaking of backflips, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the CEFC, was once dubbed, you know, Bob Brown's bank by the coalition. But now Scott Morrison has announced the CEFC is going to be part of its plan to fast track lower emissions technology. So for context, the CEFC encourages private sector investment in renewable energy and is backed by the Australian government, right? That's the way it works. Scott Morrison announced this week that he's going to invest 500 million dollars of taxpayer money to fund things like carbon capture and storage and soil carbon. And this will be administered by the CEFC. But the legislation prohibits investments being made in carbon capture and storage projects because of its reliance on fossil fuel industries. So uh, that means, Jennifer, as you know, that the Morrison government needs Labor's support, it seems, and that puts Labor in a difficult position because, you know, this idea of carbon capture and storage is incredibly um, contentious and, well, Labor clearly doesn't think it's worth investing in, but they also don't want to look to look like they're opposing this. How's this going to play out? Well, I think we're getting um, some hints very clearly from Labor uh, already that they are going to um, put this, allow this to go into the CFC on the basis that it's going to be new money. Mm. And uh, I heard uh, Tony Burke uh, pointing out today that, of course, Labor has always supported uh, carbon capture and storage. It just didn't support it being done through the CEFC because that's all supposed to be about renewables. So, uh, speaking of narrow paths, I think that's where <laughs> well, Labor they did have will be a fund to walk to. They had a big fund. I think it was four hundred fifty million dollars yeah. for carbon capture and storage, which Tony Abbott got rid of when he came in. So it's been a little yeah. bit of there's switcheroo been, here of, all around. Yes, it's been shuffling, uh, shuffling all around. And, of course, what the what Labor doesn't want to do is is open themselves up to uh, uh, what is going to be obviously another uh, attempt at a Morrison wedge of saying, oh, look, we've got all this money for this, you know, wonderful new technology and Labor is the one, you know, is, is blocking, you know, investment in, in small Australian companies and all their innovation and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's why um, Labor's going to suddenly change its position on the CEFC. And, of course, it's also being very careful, Labor, um, to say that, you know, it's, it ha- it's not anti-gas. Uh, it, you know, is trying mm. to, uh, although it's, you know, it far more, you know, wants, wants uh, to, to be very pro-renewables, uh, it's also, again, um, learned from 2019 or decided it's learned from 2019 uh, that it's not going to be accused of, you know, deserting uh, Australian workers and in traditional industries just yet. Yeah, there's a lot of ducking and weaving going on all over, isn't it? And and really, you know, Bill Shorten got caught at the last election um, between, you know, supporting um, tough action on climate change or ambitious action on climate change in the in the cities, and then you know supporting Adani up in Queensland, and and he really paid a heavy price for it. So, you know, I think every they're jumpy, no doubt about it. Um, but 
you know, we are in election mode, Jennifer. I think that's pretty clear. The Prime Minister is clearly trying to distill his attack on Labor, you know, down to a three-word slogan. And, and this week we got can-do capitalism, which sounded to me <laughs> exactly like a, a page out of John Howard's playbook. Um, what he's trying to do is, you know, saying we're different, our policies are different to Labor's, they want to they want to make people pay, they want to mandate, they want to, you know, subsidise, you know, they want to tax, all those sorts of things. And yet, you know, the government's not been beyond a, a subsidy for fossil fuel uh, industries, for instance. You mentioned the oil refineries there. There was a lot of government money poured into that. Now he's saying, look, we want to be a, you know, a smaller partner in all this and we want to leave the space for private enterprise and, and can-do capitalism to step up and do it. That's what we're about. You know, how, yes, how, well, the how other, believable yeah. is this? <laughs> well, not not very believable. Um, the other three words Logan he used was, of course, don't do government. Um, and he's trying to, you know, capitalise on the fact uh, that uh, that everybody's just a little sick of um, the uh, all, all the restrictions that were put in places by governments to protect them um, or to protect communities mm. uh, during during the worst of COVID. Now, I, I think this is a kind of highly dubious proposition and also it's, you know, it's very simplistic, obviously. You know, the need is for government to certainly give, not try and do everything, but to give markets uh, signals and in, mm. that often, it seems, does include plenty of subsidies. So um, I, I think, I don't know, I, I'm not sure that can-do capitalism is going to be all of that, uh, all, all that effective as a, as a slogan. I mean, but certainly... Um, what they will be trying to say is that we encourage um, the private sector and that's the most important thing. And, again, it'll all be done through the economic lens mm. of saying, look, we've got an economy that's roaring back, you know, the unemployment rate's falling, we've got all this investment, you know, and this is what we're allowed, you know, that's why we're, we're able to stand back because we, we've set all this up. Um, so it'll become a little bit, um, it'll be, I think that will be a reasonably effective message, you know, in terms of the economy. But I think, you know, can-do capitalism just mm. sounds a bit silly. Yeah. On a slightly different note, Jennifer, the deadline for a December election has officially now passed. So we know an election is looming sometime in the new year and the government is clearly going into election campaign mode. We know that because, you know, the PM's getting, you know, haircuts that Katie Allen has to watch and flipping, you know, um, what was he doing? Making making food in a restaurant. Making spring that, rolls, I That's think it, it spring rolls. Yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't making his scamosas, though, was he? His scomo, anyway, whatever. Um, either way, he's busy. He's busy being with the people. And, and clearly the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, has made it quite clear what he thinks too. He wrote an opinion piece in The Australian, basically said as much. He, he laid out the battle lines. The election is going to be fought over who can be trusted on the economy. But trust, Jennifer, is an issue for the Prime Minister right now, given his very public row with the French President, Emmanuel Macron. There's been questions around trustworthiness. So is the angle of who can you trust around the economy the wisest strategy? I suppose the question is not whether they want to run a a campaign on the economy. You know that they will and, and they can. But the word trust is kind of... Troubling, isn't it? Well, well, of course, <laughs> those of us with uh, unfortunately long memories uh, re- recall um, how John Howard used mm-hmm. this exact same issue to say uh, when everybody was accusing him of being untrustworthy, to say, "But who do you trust to run the economy?" Yep, uh, and that that actually worked um, reasonably well. And I do think uh, in this case, the 
biggest problem? I mean, if you look at if you look at the seats uh, and the government's precarious position, you know, there's no doubt. I don't think it, it starts from behind. And West Australia alone, they're they're likely to uh, lose three seats. Yeah. Um. And, and they really have got to pick up seats in New South Wales to have even a hope. So I mean, that gives you some idea. I think of the scale of the dilemma, but I do think that. Um, Morrison is confident and I think, you know, he's got reasonable grounds to be confident that the people he's targeting in marginal seats, when they look at Scott Morrison, who do you trust? And then they turn to Anthony Albanese and they say, well, oh, not so sure about him. Mm. I, I do think that is a very big, that that's the government's um, hope and that's their strategy. And I am not sure that relying yet again on saying, Morrison is untrustworthy is going to be enough. Now mm. I, I I can see it's a it's a big it is quite a big issue and and it's kind of does him damage um, that that kind of constant question about his character uh, in crisis. But I'm not I just don't think it's going to put enough people off of the voters that he needs to attract. Well, and that might be rely uh, that might sort of turn on the state of the economy, as you say. The prime yes. minister reminded us the economy is going to be roaring back, and if you put aside the debt and deficit, if that's if that's no longer a concern, which it has been for the last 15 years. So just change your gear on that because we've had all the spending for the pandemic, which has, you know, brought results. So the Prime Minister, once in trouble over vaccination, probably no longer by the time we get to election because we're at rec- world record vaccination rates. And the economy, uh, unemployment will be lower than perhaps it's ever been in, in my lifetime. Uh, economists are predicting there'll finally be wages growth after about six or seven years of very, very insipid wages growth. Are people going to be in a more positive mood because of that, Jennifer, and only looking at it through an economic lens? Particularly, I wonder, in in Melbourne, where you are and where PK PK is, given the sort of the world's longest lockdown that you've gone through? Uh, Well, I think people will be just wanting to kind of put, particularly in Melbourne, frankly, but Mm. put, put the past behind them and look forward. And that's where I think there is a risk for Labor. In, in just relying on the idea of people being angry with Morrison. Yes, there is a lot of that around, but there's also people just wanting to say, yeah, all right, you know, that, that's that been terrible and now we've mm. got to move forward. At the same time in Victoria, although there's no doubt I think that the um, gloss um, on Dan Andrews, uh, you know, and the whole I Stand With Dan crew, you know, they're looking a little less enthusiastic than, than they were. <laughs> Even that is going to have, you know, shifted a bit um, and people will again be, be you know, looking looking forward and mm. forgetting, you know, trying to forget, you know, all the, all the misery that was imposed. So I, I just think there's a big risk for Labor in, in trying to sound too negative and rely on anger with Morrison. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Jennifer. I think people, as a Melbourneian, I noticed that too, people are very keen to go, okay, that was really painful. Can we just move on now? Forget about it. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's not fun to dwell on it, is it, Jennifer? All right, (laughs) we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you. See you. Thanks very much, Jennifer. See ya. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Claire who writes and asks, South Australia will be having their state election in March next year. Do you think the PM is likely to call the federal election within the same month? 
Mm. Well, I think the answer to that, Claire, is we don't know. Nobody knows. But the, the thought had been that there would be an election called probably soon after Australia Day and we would have a March election. It has to be held before the end of May. That's the deadline um, constitutionally. Um, but now I think it's looking clearer that it's likely to be a May election, that the government will try and use the same playbook they used at the last election, which is have an early budget perhaps in April because the economy, I think the Prime Minister used the term, is roaring back. Unemployment's looking like it's heading down to 4% or lower, which is pretty good. And uh, many economists believe that's going to you know, do something to lift wages. So the, the nation might be in a good mood by then. Um, have the Have the budget and then call election again, which would be looking like a May election. But... You know, it's it's just a guess. Yeah, it is. It is a guess, and ultimately, I, I agree with you, Fran. I think that is the framework. But the PM will call the election when he thinks he's going to win. Exactly. I, I know it's just like a really obvious thing to say, but it's worth saying. You know, he he will he will pick the moment he thinks you know the, the ducks are lined up, and he he will he's poised to to do to perform the best. And obviously, you know, just at the beginning, I just want to mention this. At the beginning of the podcast we played in our in our montage that sort of grab of he's only got two jobs, quarantine um and 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 vaccination, right? And you know, look at the vaccination rates. It's mm. worth mentioning. They are really we should be really proud as a country and I don't give political leaders that much credit for that. I mean, the Australians who have turned up and got jabbed at these record rates, better than the US, better than the UK now. Like we are, we're yeah. winners, right? We are doing well. And it just goes to show how quickly things can change from that grab from elbow, those two issues, quarantine now, we don't even really talk of it, do we, like we did, because particularly in the two big states, we are not quarantining people if they're fully vaccinated. It's a whole different world. So, yeah, things can really shift. So that also means he will call the election when he feels like he's yeah. on top. And that's why I mentioned the economy, because, yes, I think on vaccination, to quote Scott Morrison from another area, Australia's meaten and beaten its targets. Um, and, and you know, really, it's it's probably receded. Uh, certainly will have receded, I think, maybe not so much in Victoria, uh, having had been the sort of world's longest lockdown city, but generally not an issue at the next election. It's going to be about the economy and certainly, uh, as we've talked earlier, that's the switch the government's making, trying to make right now. That's right. So on a different note, it's been a long year for everyone and I think it's almost time to have a little break from politics over the summer. I think we could all use it. There are two more sitting weeks coming up, but we're only going to actually have two more episodes of The Party Room after this one. We're going to wrap the year after the episode on the 25th of November, which is a sitting sitting week. But we'll be back. Don't worry. It's an election year. We'll be back for more partying. That's right. And Fran, you won't be on our own breakfast next year, but you're going to be here with me, which we wanted to remind people of again. So exactly. you will be actually in people's ears. You can count on it. I'm not going yeah. anywhere. No, you're, you're in people's ears pretty much for the rest of our natural lives. Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember, you can follow us on the ABC Listener app or your favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.